refusal is a part and a crucial part of blackness. Mm. Um, and I think in many ways, the Haitian Revolution was a moment where this group of slaves from West Africa refused a particular colonial gaze and sort of achieved the task of self-actualization in defiance of three of the world's largest uh, superpowers. Welcome to the November 29th, 2018 edition of the Hyperallergic Weekly Podcast, Art Movement. That's Didier William, who's an artist who just had two solo exhibitions in New York's art galleries this fall. To talk about this impressive two-part show, I invited hyperallergic editor and critic Seth Rodney into the studio to tell us more. It is very rare that an artist has an exhibition run concurrently at two galleries in New York City, and rarer still to have them do so in separate neighborhoods. So to get at the story behind the development of Didier Williams' Curtains, Stages, and Shadows, Act 1 and Act 2, at James Fuentes Gallery in the Lower East Side and at Anna Zarina Gallery in Chelsea, respectively, I sat down to speak with William. So what did you learn from the conversation? You want to give us a little taste? Sure. What I found out was that talking with him was equally as fascinating as looking at the work in the show. Uh, shows, I should say. William, who is currently the chair of the MFA program at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts and a queer Haitian man, is very attuned to the possibilities of individual agency and how that agency gets shaped and conditioned by history, by gender, by sexuality, by skin tone. And it turns out he's deeply concerned with using the figures he creates on canvas as vehicles for his very expansive notions of agency and autonomy. I love hearing about that. I mean, I, I saw one of the exhibitions and I found it quite powerful as well. I kept thinking of the word slippery to describe the figures of compositions because, you know, he plays with focal points and centers of interest and it's sort of these figures seem to like, you know, stick out of the frame and sort of like appear in different kinds of ways. I just love how mercurial they felt. And it's almost like he just fixes them into place temporarily. And that's the moment that he captures. So what was your first impression of this body of work? As soon as I walked into James Fuentes' gallery, it felt weighty to me. It felt like the work was more than just painterly exploration of formal qualities or stylistic intricacies. I saw the figures holding weapons and spades and other objects, and I knew there were some serious issues at play. I love that word weighty because, you know, that back room at the James Fuentes display really pulled it together for me. It had this sort of heft. It evoked a sense of history, identity, visceral realities that sprung from all those things. Yeah, I think it's really amazing that he managed to pull the show together in only a matter of a few months. And what comes across is that he really needed to make this work. And then there's a, still a fire that's that's burning in him about this work. He said to me during the interview that uh, each of those paintings that showed up in the shows probably have spawned five or six more paintings. So that's weighty cargo indeed. Sounds great. So I'll let you take it from here. I'm in studio with Didier William talking about his show, which is really two shows exhibited up until last week in New York City at James Fuentes Gallery, which is in the Lower East Side, 
and Anna's Arena Gallery, which is in Chelsea. The show is titled Curtains, Stages, and Shadows, Act 1 and Act 2, in the respective locations. And we were talking a little bit earlier about like how the whole show came together and how the work was deeply personal for you. I want to kind of start there because I recall that when I went to James Fuentes Gallery, mm -hmm. which is uh, the gallery I focused on for my review of your work, I talked about how the back room was really key mm -hmm. to understanding how the whole entire show made sense to me. Because you have script there that essentially relays the summarized histories of few of the women who were really key to the Haitian Revolution. And that's what got me thinking about how the show really focuses on this kind of Haitian identity, but it's amorphous, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's not, it, it could be male, could be female. Mm -hmm. It's kind of somewhere in that continuum. Could you tell us why that way of creating the figures for you? It's a great question. And I think I needed to figure out a way to talk about exactly what you just described, this sort of continuum of gender, continuum of race. And more specifically, on the historical level, I think if you look at many different historians who have talked about the Haitian Revolution, um, they all have slightly different sort of perspectives and different focuses on the Haitian Revolution. The European perspective is, is quite different than the American perspective, which is quite different than the Haitian perspective. Um, and the Haitian perspective, even within the Caribbean, is quite different from the larger CARICOM community. And so there's a potential there for me as an author to begin to imagine yet another perspective that attempts to make visible the bodies and voices um, and identities that have been left behind mm. in the historical archives. Mm. Many of those bodies, in fact, are the bodies and identities of women who've been left behind in the historical archive. And that room in the back at James Fuentes Gallery was an opportunity for me to really focus and, and in some ways build a memorial in the back of this, mm. in, this gallery, mm. um, which is why I centered on those three women in particular. Could have been many, many different uh, different women. Um, Sanita Belair, uh, Toya Mantou, and um, Cécile Fatima. But as you said, once you sort of use that room as an index for the entirety of the exhibition, Yes, these are the bodies of women, but it really sort of breaks down the gendered index um, that one could use to read read the show. It's important to me that the bodies are degendered and unraced uh, and not raced uh, in in very particular ways. So that's the sort of historical side. But even on the personal end, I think many of us in the diaspora sort of engage in this fervent sort of race to try to access ideas and images and content from back home, mm -hmm. a home that is only an imaginary. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And that even if we did succeed in ever going back to, wouldn't represent what we have constructed in our imagination. And so there's a discrepancy there. There's a cognitive discrepancy that I think is important. And that I actually think instead of a side of trauma could be a side of agency. And even in my earlier work, it was really important to me to not be too rigid about how that gets imaged, even though I was making paintings. By mm -hmm. definition, still images, how do I talk about that very temporal experience of sort of rubber banding from present time mm -hmm. to this other time that's mythological, that's allegorical, that's mm -hmm. historical, um, that's anecdotal and personal, all at the same time. Um, uh, never really quite being able to take any of those constituent parts 
and make them rigid and whole, but having to contend with all of them together. Um, in that way, I, I can't sort of adhere to a binary relationship to gender. I have to focus on kind of a singular gaze or multiple gaze that isn't just about black and white binary race relations, but about this kind of curious gaze that attempts to contain bodies in the first place. Interesting. So when I went to Anna Zorna Gallery mm-hmm. and I saw Act Two, mm-hmm. That, what you just said, begins to help me cohere what I think were sort of bits that were floating about my consciousness that mm-hmm. I couldn't quite make a story of yet. Because what happens in that part of the show is that the bodies start to kind of go everywhere. Like mm-hmm. they almost become curtains, like mm-hmm. they almost become stages, like they start to sort of they start to start to lose that kind of clear figuration, right, that they have, for the most part, in Act One. And in Act One, I get, I mean, I get now that there's a way in which the figures are, are kind of get their sort of heft or their sort of presence because they're bound to that history that you're memorializing. Mm-hmm. But in Act Two, you're like essentially suggesting that they can go out and become part of a kind of imaginary and in in many ways that's where their agency comes from Mm. is in this potential to extend beyond the singular body when i first started carving eyes into my surfaces to begin with it was in fact an effort to try to figure out how can i get a singular body that is the subject of a curious gaze a gaze Mm. that often leads to the loss of life um, how can I get that body to find agency elsewhere, find agency in ancestral relationships, mm. find agency outside of itself, mm. find agency in uh, gravity, find agency in the architecture, find mm. agency in the terrain and the geographic terrain? Um, because in many ways, this is also what my ancestors during the Haitian Revolution had to do in order to defeat three of the world's most powerful armies with very little technical weaponry. Um, They had to find their agency elsewhere. And I think sitting with that Mm -hmm. in this contemporary moment Mm -hmm. when we find ourselves at threat yet again. Right. Literally under political and physical threat. Precisely. Bodies of color under those kinds of threats. Precisely. Sitting with these sort of examples of revolution mm-hmm. um, is really sort of important to me. And I think you talked about this in the in the essay for Hyper, this sort of need to rehearse the pictorial moves of revolution. I think it's really, really important. And so in the second act, I really wanted to sort of allow the bodies to extend into the curtain, into right. the stage, into each other. Right. I think, you know, going back to the previous question, it sometimes is hard to disentangle two or three bodies from one another. And so even in their physical composition, how does one even begin to sort of limit them to a specific gender? Um, you can't, it, right. it, it's really quite difficult. No, they're, um, they're really amorphous, amoeba-like. And I think that's what made me have trouble connecting the two acts mm-hmm. together. But now that we're talking about it, and I'm fascinated by this idea of having agency by actually becoming part of these basically part of these kind of infrastructural things, Mm -hmm. right? By which we make sense of our... Ourselves. Ourselves, like literally part of the terrain. Mm -hmm. One of the paintings in the second act, Danto Anais, is uh, Madonna and Child. Mm -hmm. Except in in Haiti, Madonna and Child is not Mary and Christ, it's Ezeli Danto and her daughter, Anais. 
a, a particularly feminist bent on the Christian archetype. And in that painting, the two figures, the Madonna, uh, Ezeli, Ezeli Danto and Anais, are deeply enmeshed in one another. Mm-hmm. Um, their, their boundaries are blurred. They're sort of performing this act we're talking about where they're beginning to meld in, into, into the tapestry and into the patterning, into the ornamentation right. of the painting. And therein lies their potential to not only dazzle, but also horror the viewer. And I, I, I really need and want that kind of um, uh, really tense relationship to rational space. Because you want, in some ways, or rather you see in some ways, these figures having agency precisely because they get to escape that gaze. Precisely. Right. Like, mm-hmm. And it makes me think of um, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, actually. Mm. T.S. Eliot, you know, T.S. Eliot's poem, where he says, he talks about um, that gaze that fixes you mm-hmm. and formulates you. He says, and when I am fixed and formulated and, and, and pinned, when I am pinned and wriggling on the wall, then how should I begin to spit out the butt ends of my days and ways? Mm. And I think a lot about that when I think, when I see your work, because there is a way in which the gaze, and this is a gaze that is performed by everyone, it's, it's certainly performed by me, mm-hmm there's a way in which my gaze formulates people. Right. Right? Like, I see them and I say, oh, I know what you're about. Exactly. Right? But, but the, the, the issue, I think, for people of color, historically, is that the gaze, that kind of gaze, comes with profound consequences for your life chances. Mm-hmm. Profound risk. Profound risk for your life chances. The first time I carved anything was a painting called um, His Life Depends on Spotted Lies. Mm -hmm. And it was a little portrait um, that I was working on in my Brooklyn apartment. The first time I was coming back to the figure from a long period of non-representational painting. Mm -hmm. And I made this little portrait and and stained the figure of the body. And I carved two eyes right into, you know, where the eyes would normally be in a portrait. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, I think because the painting was so small, I think because I was working on it in my bedroom, I think because I was exhausted, um, I continued carving. And I, I, I multiplied the eyes and just carved all the way through the facade or face of the figure until I got down to about the neck or the clavicle. And then I stopped and that was the first time I carved anything. And there was something about the presence of it, there was something about the return. There was a startling quality about that painting that really began this way of materializing the gaze because at that point the painting and the material sort of took over mm. and and did something that I didn't anticipate and that I didn't um, quite expect. Now in the backdrop mm. of that painting was the acquittal of George Zimmerman after um, he murdered Trayvon Martin. And there was something so incredibly impactful for many of us about Trayvon's murder that really just sat with me for a very long time and still sits with me. And it was during that moment that I sort of realized that I needed to come back to the figure, that there was risk in not imaging the body, particularly the bodies of black and brown people. And I, I even thought, you know, what would what would Trayvon have needed that night in order to refute and protect himself from Zimmerman's curious gaze? Zimmerman's gaze ended up costing Trayvon his life. Zimmerman's attempt to contain and frame and quote unquote know Trayvon's body ended up costing Trayvon his life. What would Trayvon have needed to not only shield but also return some of that gaze, some of that violent gaze back onto George Zimmerman? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that it's it's crucial these days to have that conversation around the gaze and to have that conversation around 
the possibility of that being reciprocated, mm-hmm. right? That it's not, and this is what I, I deeply appreciated about the bodies, the figures, especially in the, in the um, James Puentes part of the show, because they are those, those omnidirectional eyes are really part of that Haitian revolutionary ethos, right? Mm-hmm. That they see yes. what's happening to them. Yes. Right? They are not they are not ignorant. <laughs> they are not they are not surprised. Right. And what I love is that you get the sense that they have been seeing for a while. Yes. Right? Like this is this is not news. And I think of that too when um when in the wake of the last horrendous presidential election we had mm-hmm. people you know there was a lot of rent clothing and a lot of like mm-hmm. hair pulling and, and and people tossing ashes over themselves rhetorically one of the things that i heard was that when you t- when p- uh, places like the root mm-hmm. or um essence magazine or what have you outlets where voices of color were predominant mm-hmm. a clear vein of the arguments that came out of that debacle was we are not surprised right we have seen this before we knew this exactly right and i i imagine that part of what animates your practice is being pulled between the poles of i don't want to just talk about what i know although that's really present and Mm -hmm. compelling to me but also want to in some ways talk about what i don't know right and so how do you get to what you don't know it's a great question. Um, it's a great question. And I think I get to what I don't know by not only trying to effectively articulate the fact that refusal is a part and a crucial part of blackness. Mm. Um, and I think in many ways, the Haitian Revolution was a moment where this group of slaves from West Africa refused a particular colonial gaze and sort of achieved the task of self-actualization in defiance of three of the world's largest um, uh, superpowers. But that refusal is not all of it. One also has to imagine potential futures. Mm -hmm. And those futures have to be a requisite part of them is that they're about multiplicity. Mm. They have to be degendered. They have to be uh, not sort of bound to the binary. They have to be, in some ways, sort of attempt to take history and allow history to sit with the present moment at the same time. This question of multiplicity, I think, is an important one because in the moments where we tried to be made rigid or we tried to be made whole or we tried to be contained, those historically have always come with the potential cost of violence to right. our bodies. Um, they've always cost us our lives. And so in order to imagine any kind of potential future where in love and presence can be possible, we have to imagine a kind of multiplicity attached to that. I don't see really any other way. Um, and, and for me in that way, that's always meant having a relationship to imaging the bodies of black and brown people that wasn't about making anything rigid or legible or still. And, and it had to require from my viewer that they too must also work. You know, there's many reasons, but I think it was one of the reasons why I also made all the titles in Creole without any translations. I wanted to sort of point viewers to this other way of reading the text mm-hmm. and this way in which the text could potentially be misread, mm-hmm. right? And that there's 
there's potential power in that misread. And this is something that, of course, doesn't have to be explained to people in the diaspora, to people who move here from other countries, because it sort of animates our entire process of naturalization of this country, where we're constantly misreading what it means to be American or American jokes or uh, American idioms and things like that. So how do I then take that process and use it as a way to sort of articulate potential futures for black agency, that really sits at the core of my practice, materially, conceptually, personally. Um, this, I think, was the first body of work where I sort of got closest to the idea. Right. And I want to say, I want to point out, I think it's I think it's worth saying, or worth identifying, that when we talk about this multiplicity of being, mm-hmm. that we're not, we're not just talking about um, gender. We're also talking about sexuality. Absolutely. We're, we're also talking about just shades of ethnicity just right. like skin color because that used to be one of the huge markers back in like not so long ago the 80s 90s i'm thinking of spike lee films where like you would sort of like literally that person's skin color would denote a certain level of blackness mm-hmm. or wokeness mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and i think that and in many parts of the country still is right <laughs> exactly right like like if you're like a chocolate brother then you're supposed to be like right. more like with it or more down or more like prepared to like pick up arms and go right and, and right buy it and of course that's ridiculous but one of the things that is clear about our um where we're sort of meeting in terms of our understanding of multiplicity is that the kind of multiplicity that you are talking about has to a certain extent evade a lot of different gazes absolutely right absolutely it's not just about gender absolutely i mean and i think on a personal level it comes from growing up as a closeted gay immigrant in miami who spoke a weird language right i could tell the various ways in which People looked at me strange when I walked about school or walked about town or got on the bus. And sometimes it was because I was speaking Creole. Sometimes it was because I behaved effeminately. Sometimes it was because I was eating food they didn't consider to be American. Um, It it was was always the, the particular curiosity and its violence was known and felt, but its source was different every time. And so... How does one even begin to try to make that really complex process of identification and disidentification rigid? It's impossible. And I think the path forward needs to be to find agency within that multiplicity because that multiplicity is a fact of life. Exactly. And I do think that there's a kind of, a kind of, um, what's the word, refracted mm-hmm. sort of resistance to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think when people hear the term, which is um, the sort of, multiculturalism right like for some people that makes their hackles go up right because they think that means that oh my point of view isn't going to be privileged anymore right 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 and and what you're precisely suggesting is that it shouldn't be right <laughs> <laughs> right in, in order for us to right. actually have an open future there is no center <laughs> hallelujah <laughs> and that's terrifying for many people right you know right right because it's not the old paradigm of we need to move the periphery to the center you're right. talking about right in 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 what happens if we decenter privilege in that way mm. it's it's you know it's a radical proposition that many writers and artists and theorists have talked about before us having this conversation um but i think it's something that we need to sit with yet again particularly now right so just in terms of your art practice what we are suggesting is that you are decentering a kind of gaze by using figuration in the way you're doing mm-hmm. and i'm connecting the sort of 
historical content and in the gaze upon which we see and digest and read that content um, with mythological and allegorical Haitian worship rituals in the form of Odoo. Um, and then coupling that with my own personal narrative and oratory that intersects and bisects and sometimes antagonizes the historical narrative in really productive ways and in ways that I think are analogous to what all of us perform in the diaspora pretty much every day. That kind of fervent need to connect the imaginary from what sits in the present and what sits in real time, I think is really at the center of my practice. And really, I should say that it began it began making most sense when I found the intersection of painting and printmaking in my work. Mm-hmm. In print, materiality is insisted upon at mm-hmm. every step of the practice. Mm-hmm. I mean, from the moment you pull out a plate to the moment you etch it or carve into it, put ink on it, mm-hmm. push it through the press. and pull. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're always dealing with the sort of intersection of material and color, material and mark, material and surface. You mm-hmm. can't get away from it. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to say that I didn't understand color until... I started making prints because in print, color and material are enmeshed. You can't separate them. And so this kind of layered relationship to content made most sense to me when printmaking intersected my my painting practice. And so I feel like I need to ask this question, even though it's a kind of uh, expected one. Where to now? Like, what would the next show, what ideas will animate the Mm -hmm. next series of works Mm -hmm. for you? You um, you pointed to the back room, and in many ways focused on the back room in the essay for Hyper, and I I said I appreciate that, and I, I in many ways I appreciate that because I think that's pointing to the future direction of the work, mm-hmm. um, the the historical narrative narratives that mm-hmm. I think I got into for this show excited me in ways that I didn't anticipate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm already thinking about the next project, including more of that content. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting with a lot of the historical narratives from particularly the revolution, but even the period before the revolution, mm-hmm. um, because the revolution, act, we think about 1804 as a revolution, but the revolution was being planned for decades long before 1804. And the the content from that time, the stories from that time, the the heroism from that time, I think, needs to be talked about and leveraged more. Yes. And I, I I really see the next show moving into that direction and, and, and continuing the kind of personal intersection as well. Brilliant. Well, that gives us something to look forward to. I personally want to know when, uh, whenever you next show, I know that the work that I've seen from you so far, and literally I've just discovered it in these last two shows, um, I find it nourishing. I find it, um, I find that it, it stretches me. I find that it, ch- it challenges me. And all those things are productive in a good way. I Thank you so much. Yes. It's It's been a, this show was the most personal one I've done in, in a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was exhausting in many ways, but I appreciate you mentioning the word nourishing because I feel like each painting in the show has five or six paintings that are going to be spawned from it. And so I'm, I'm super excited for that as well. Great, great. Well, thank you for talking with us today, Didier. Thank you, Seth. I appreciate it. Thanks, Seth. What did you learn from talking with the artist? Any surprises? Well, I was surprised to find that he managed to pull the show together in only a matter of five months. In fact, he told me that he ended up 
getting the work to the galleries earlier than he had originally planned. That's impressive. It is. I think he really needed to make this work. And I think that that fire that uh, sprung up in him is still burning. During the interview, he told me that for each of those paintings, that they likely spawned the ideas for five or six more paintings. So he's got a lot of work ahead of him to do that he really wants to do. Wow, maybe we'll see a three-part exhibition next time, <laughs> or four-part, <laughs> right. never know. Right. Great, thanks again, Seth. Sure. This week, we want to give a special thanks to Red Wedding for providing the music for this week's episode. I'm Harag Bartanyan, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening, and enjoy your week.